You're listening to Tabletop Arcanum, a podcast dedicated to learning and exploring the hobby of tabletop gaming. Your hosts are Justin Taylor and Richard Geese, so sit back and relax as we talk, discuss, and joke our way through the hobby we love so much. Welcome to Tabletop Arcanum. I'm Justin and I'm your host today. This special episode, I have another interview. We're going back to Alex Flagg and we're going to talk about the journey to Buru. Buru being the upcoming game from Crafty Games. We've done an interview with Alex about himself where he hinted about this upcoming project. Then we had our review. And now finally, we're going to talk about the story of where Buru started, where it went, where it's going, and what comes next. So take a listen. Welcome back, Alex. Glad to have you back on our show. Glad to be here. And this time we're going to be talking through the journey to Buru. Mm-hmm. So we learned a little bit about you last in our last interview, but this time we're going to really dive deep onto Buru, where it started, where it's going next. Sure. Great. First off, in case anyone hasn't listened to uh, the review for us or our prior interview with you, give us that 30-second, 60-second elevator pitch for Buru. What is it? Buru is an Indonesian-themed, midweight Euro-style game. It plays in about 60 to 90 minutes, uh, ages 10 and up, where you are playing explorers arriving at the island of Buru. You've met the islanders, and you are trying to win their esteem to get them to join the Majapahit Empire. And so you're going to do so by collecting resources, bringing islanders into your team so that you can pay tribute to the spirits that are revered there. The game includes mechanics like bidding, action selection, objective fulfillment, some hidden objectives. So you've got a lot of classic Euro game mechanics bound up in this whole bigger theme. Awesome. You've been working on this for quite a bit of time. So for the journey to Buru here, where where did it all start? What was the original origin story of Buru? We started out as a um, role-playing game company back in 2003. Six. Uh, and we've spent our first 10 years basically doing role-playing games. I've landed a number of games, including the Mistborn Adventure Games, Spycraft, Fantasycraft, things like that. And so that was our bread and butter. We transitioned to board games with uh, Kevin Wilson's Mistborn House War, based on the novel series of the same name uh, by Brandon Sanderson. And we had just come off that campaign uh, in 2017. We were, we were delivering the game at that show. We just sent out to Kickstarter backers and things like that. And then we started to get approached by designers with new games. And we knew we wanted to expand beyond just doing, you know, this narrow licensed game sphere. And we want to do more than just house war. Uh, one of the guys that approached us was Stephen Wren. He brought us this little game called Buru. So just a kind of a simple prototype. That's where we found it at that show. And so we we got to sit down at the show and, and uh, put hands on it, see it in play. And we were really intrigued by what it was, decided to option it. And so that's the very early genesis of the game. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where Crafty kind of came into this thing and Stephen Wren kind of brought you the concept and, and did that. What was it about Buru that, other than it not being a, a, a IP licensed sort of game, hmm. that uh, said this is the one that Crafty Games wants to, to option and, and try for? It's different when you're looking at a prototype game. You know, a lot of times things are very soft. You know, you're looking at a lot of different files, like some games you look at and you just say, oh, well, you know, maybe I don't like where the the the, the theme seems trite or, you know, or this is really part of a statue. Oh, look at the fantasy dungeon crawler. It seems like you're going to look past that to the different parts that you can kind of take out. But with Buru, I think one of the things that caught us initially was the theme. I, you know, I asked that I asked him in that pitch meeting, I'm like, what is this? And he said, oh, that's an island in Indonesia. And Stephen's theme was pretty light at that point. It was a very kind of a traditional Euro game that he brought us, but it had some really intriguing mechanics. And so, you know, I saw that Indonesian theme, which intrigued me. We sat down and played it, and then I really liked the the heavy player interaction that was in the game, the uh, novel use of of how it handled bidding and uh, competition for actions. I love action selection games, so that was kind of just hit me in the right spot. Yeah, so then I, I saw a lot of potential in the game. And that's what you're always trying to do when you're looking at prototypes is look past maybe the particulars, the, the whys and wherefores and decisions they make. Because some people are just slapping something on, knowing that it's going to change, and they're looking for a way to just find an intriguing gameplay. And then say, what can I possibly do with this game? We saw a lot there to work with and ways that we could, you know, we might change this or we might change that. But, you know, it ended up being bigger evolution off that initial concept than we initially thought, which I think was for the better 
in everybody's opinion seeing what it could have been uh mm -hmm. not just the uh prototype pieces that were laid in front of you <laughs> sure yeah what kind of steps came next so you get this pitch, you make the option, and then where does Buru go from there? The first thing you kind of do when you get a new title, you get the files from the designer, you get what they would say is the final version, the, the one that they want to present, and work with them to figure out how much more are they willing to do, or are they willing to come back and take another step of it after we've done a development pass. But development begins. This is where, you know, you have to make the decisions. What's the theme going to be? What mechanics need to be massaged? What can be improved? What can't be improved? How, how do people engage with the game? And so this is kind of a big nebulous sort of task. Uh, and since it was the first game we developed outside a, a pretty narrow window, I mean, you know, you're working on a game like House War, which comes from Kevin. Kevin's done this many, many times. And so that game doesn't need a lot of development. It still needs some, but that's more about, you know, just tying things better to the theme, you know, working in names and working on the art piece I got from the artist maybe is going to force me to change the theme to make the art and, and theme work together. But, you know, with an original game from a uh, new face on the scene there's a lot more different tasks you have to do to kind of juggle it so yeah we just kind of got our hands in there rolled our sleeves up and started a conversation and that also involved us playing it a number of times and and seeing like okay well you know, this seems awkward or this seems clunky in some ways how could we make this easier and and everybody approaches it different ways so it's it's just a, it's kind of a rolling that for us it was like six month period where we just were exploring the game and figuring out what do we want to tinker with and what do we what could we do we think we could be improved and getting notes back to Steven and he, him doing some iteration and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this game is a little bit unusual because we went through that development process and then we started uh, the inevitable question, well, what kind of expansion material can you do? We want to kind of settle things down and then start thinking, having a designer usually is focused on just getting a release candidate together. How can mm -hmm. they take it further? And so that started what we call the Ambalau expansion now. That was the basis of it. So Stephen went back to the drawing board, thought of other mechanics maybe he'd set aside, and how could this be integrated? And so he themed it around an island near Buru, and so that we could find a way to combine those two together. That period went on for about a year. While I was developing the base game, he's working on the main game. That conversation's going back and forth. Mm -hmm we kind of got to a point where we started to hang up a little bit on stuff. And, and we brought in another voice, Taryn Kratz, who does Helionux. He's done some other uh, work on some other titles and he's a local to me here in Portland. And so we had met and he was, he was looking for some work. He had some time and some his schedule. So we brought him in as a completely new face and he came into the game totally cold. And then he did a bunch of development works. So he, he kind of did a, a structural development pass. So he looked at the game and, and put it in his playtest group, which happened to be a bunch of local designers. They went through a thing. And he, what he came back was he had fundamentally took some systems and said he had no, he was not married to anything from the past. So he can just attack it as a work that could be directly critiqued and rebuilt a lot of things. And it was a huge, uh, crucial improvement to the game. Like it really fixed a bunch of issues that I was unable to. It was green enough and I was too tied into things we'd done before mm -hmm. um, that I couldn't make those changes so he came in and really kind of shook everything up that kind of set us on the path to getting the game done so this process took the better part of like two and a half years but you know that's that's development you know you can't mm -hmm. always put a put a clock on it from the beginning awesome so now we're talking two and a half years from like 2017 a lot of iterations a lot of things have changed mm -hmm. so what are some of those core concepts that from day one that Stephen wren brought you guys that are still there in what never left we kept all the things that we liked you know if you buy a, a porsche you want to have a porsche right <laughs> there's a reason you got the thing you got even if you need to make changes and so in, in this case we kept buru has always been the name of the game there was a point where i was doing the thematic rebuild we had to decide are we going to go with something different? You know, are we going to look at something that maybe is, since we're using a real place in the story, we should tie it to that place or should we change it, change the name of the game and change the theme of the game to something totally different? Because, you know, we don't want to do an active disservice to a real place in the real world with real people who've lived there and have ancestry there and everything else. So we had to make that decision at one point. And you said, you know, but this is why we liked the game. We liked that it was a Southeast Asian theme. So let's do more. Let's lean into that. So that was one of the things is that that was that concept of Buru, that it's people coming to an island, two different cultures meeting each other. And you, as the people who are visiting, winning those people over was sort of the one of the things we liked. And so we wanted we, we decided that's going to stay. 
the novel bidding mechanic in the game is you have explorers that are playing pieces that are numbered one to five. You place them face down, you're bidding into different parts of the island, and nobody knows what you're bidding. You can bid any number of workers in those areas, and each area has a different utility, generates different pieces. And so that was something we kept. Uh, the, the bidding mechanic was the key interactive point. There's that, it creates the what I call like the moment of that game, the big high point, which is when you win that bid, just barely. You edge somebody out, and you get the thing you really wanted, and you thwart them. So you you kind of get that the little high of doing that. And that... That can happen, you know, 20 times a game, which is nice. Right. And so it was it was being able to create that moment and, and saying like this particular experience in the game is something we want to highlight. So how do we build around that? Because that was that's always been there winning that bid. And so, you know, we wanted to keep those those mechanics and those kind of game tempo experiences present. You know, we had another a number of other pieces in the box. You know, we always had this idea of like kind of set collection or um, control of a particular um, group of people. You know, they were originally called tribes in the beginning mm -hmm. game, but you know, now we have the spirit totems, which have handled that in a much more elegant way. And there's lots of other pieces. There was always islanders in the game. You know, we, we always use fish as a currency. There was always these sorts of elements were there, but that's always been there. And that's always what we wanted to keep in the game. That's what you kept. Let's flip that on the other side. What really is now like completely different from what you represented at 2017? What's changed? I think if a game is a collection of parts and you know some parts work better than others and things are more attractive to others, more central to it, its identity, mm -hmm. then we wanted to look, we give ourselves permission to question everything else. The theme, for example, so we like the idea of this being in the real place in Indonesia, but the original concept was this oh, well, it's the end of the Stone Age, and there are some kind of proto-Polynesian people who've arrived here. Those are the explorers, and then there's there's already people on the island. So there's these Austronesian people there. And, you know, and we kind of looked at that theme, and I, I looked around for it, and I was like, well, you know, there's no Polynesians in this area, mm -hmm. you know, historically, until like 1100, 1200, you know, like, and even then would they have this encounter? And so I went back and I said, you know, well, let's look at Buru first. If Buru is our fixed point, what can we do? And that's how I found came upon this Majapahit Empire. So that the concept, the Javanese Majapahit Empire, which became when we think about Indonesia now, you know, things like the Wayang Kulit shadow puppetry, kind of the Hindo-Malay kingdoms that were in that area at the time. Uh, that is really tied to Majapahit, and Majapahit, as I found out, was really important to as part of Indonesian national identity. Mm -hmm. This is an Indonesian golden age, and so. There was a time, the first mention of Buru is in a great Majapahit epic. And so that was kind of the thing that really twigged me to, this is something we can run with. This actually leans into the theme. This has, this is a chance for us to do this feudal era design, to do something with the art and stuff, all the things that make, that we think of as really definitive of Indonesia and, mm -hmm. and uh, and put those into the game, which will make the game, the theme really kind of sing uh, in a lot of ways, visually and and then how can we really put put it in a place and a time and everything else like that. So that was kind of the first task. But, you know, we had from the game side on the other half, we had made a ton of changes to the round structure. And, you know, we used to have, you know, for example, we have this system where every region has a spirit associated with it. You're kind of mm -hmm. trying to win the totem of that spirit and that gives you some extra esteem. So basically by triumphing in the village, you'll get a hold of the Manuk totem, which is kind of representative of civilization and the people. But the system originally was a tribe element. There was like a phase where we would you'd have to look at the number of car Islander cards you collected and whoever had the most two points. And if you were tied, everybody got one and it was fine, but it was a whole like stop and do math part mm. of the game. And that wasn't fun per se. It was important, but it wasn't fun. Taryn had this idea of totems and how do we restructure it so that instead of having this stop and do math, how do you have that math be a reward of doing something you'd be doing anyway? And so that's where the totem concept came for. You would, just getting the totem was enough, and and that, but it also made this dynamic new element where people could pass them around, and you're trying, you're still trying to control them, but instead of doing this long-term building your engine to control this thing and then holding it, you instead are doing this tug of war over. Well, I really need that because that will help me. I'm going to pay tribute to Ganung. I also need to get the Ganung totem to get me mm -hmm. even to really amplify it. So whereas other players, say, oh, he's going to go for Ganung. I want to get control of the totem in order to exploit and ride on his success. You know, so that's another point of interaction and planning, which is really nice. 
the original game had a system where you'd go through and you'd collect resources. You'd collect your islanders first, and then you would collect tribute tokens. So you would basically get a ticket to pay tribute to a spirit. And then you would go to get resources at the forest. And then you would go to the village. And the village is where you had to do all the actions. And so one thing we identified pretty early on was, and it was, you know, four, three, two, one, or something like that. And so what happened was it realized that the arc of the game was these areas' values change over time to players. And what happened is the village at the end of the game was everybody was, there was a scramble to try to cash in all your resources to turn them into tributes so you could score points. It made that space way, way too valuable at certain points of the game and completely worthless at others. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we tore it down and said, how can we make every area equally useful? How do we create every area of the board as a way to execute a different type of strategy within the space of the game? Still knowing you're still trying to score points, but how do we spread out the love so there's no bad spots, good spots where experience is rewarded uh, purely over a good strategy? You know, and, and then there's some other subtle things. Like one of the changes that we made late in the game was we saw that players were playing and they would give up halfway through. People who fell too far behind mm -hmm. uh, would just give up. And I, I would play in with people and I wonder why it was happening. And I realized, you know, finally somebody says, well, there's no way I can catch up. And mm. you know, crossed his arms, leans back. And I said, oh, this guy can see the math underneath the game. And he knows he didn't have a chance. And so we made a big change, which is we switched from open scores to partially open scores. That was where we have these tribute cards now, though the way the game works is you cash in your resources, you draw a card off the deck, you keep that card. That that score is not revealed until the end of the game. Uh, instead of having it where, oh, okay, every time you hit this, you pay tribute to the spirit, you score four points, which is how it was mm -hmm. before. And what that does is it takes the math load out of the way, and it takes the notion that you can just know who's going to win or feel like you can't you can't climb the hill so he keeps players in the game the whole time and that was really crucial to creating better engagement you don't want people to just throw up their hands right so yeah that's the type of stuff that you have to do is some of it's coming out of observation some of it's coming out of things you can see through just play and some things are you got to bring something better to the game to the thematic stuff is a definite improvement and then some are product-based. The last one we did is make the game language neutral. I've never made a language neutral game before. We saw the game, how it was looking and who it's going to appeal to. You know, with these colors and this style of game, we knew that we wanted to sell it. It had a better chance than a lot of other games to sell into other markets. We decided to figure out how to make a language neutral game. And so that meant rewriting, not just, oh, well, how do you take these words and turn them into like a hieroglyphic for those words? You actually have to fundamentally think about how each card and each icon can be easily read and understood consistently across the entire game you're creating a language for it and that also means redesigning certain things to, they can't be as complicated because you can't lean on a bunch of text you can't have corner cases on the cards and so you know that was a big big change but you know that i think the game is better for it at the end of the day a lot of games you know if it's language neutral once you understand your your icons of the game you're golden you you know if you come across that icon again you know what it already means if if they're consistent right yes, you know i mean you have true. to be let, you know, we have an example here late in development. I just came across one that was not quite working. We had, we show a back of an Islander card, which is to recruit an Islander and add them to your tableau. And we have a mechanic in the game in the expansion, which was draw an Islander and put him in front of you for free. And we're using the same icon. No. You know, and it's like, oh, that's not going to work because that icon means something different. So you actually have to start, you create a little box for yourself and you have to write this particular way every time someone sees a little black disc that means gain one ebony right it can't mean anything else and you can't fudge it and so you see you see euro games struggle with this sometimes i think most mm -hmm. of them are well executed but occasionally they get into some well here's a very minor rule like this is an event and we're trying to do it and so they'll kind of fudge it and it gets pretty confusing but yes like i've tried to create an iconography that's very rock solid you know mm -hmm. an ebony is an ebony is an ebony at all points that's the review of what stayed the same and what's changed just from the design standpoint now the other thing when we reviewed buru we, you know one of the things that we uh, my wife and i captured a lot was like the beautiful art and like the theme wasn't just what we were doing but the art and the direct you know direction from that brought us into this world of buru where does the art direction for buru start and where where did that journey kind of go you know art direction unless you have a lot of money to throw away you've got to land your theme first and you also want to know how your game works 
you know, if you need to have every card illustrated, you know, with a with an individual picture, that's a very different budget than if you can just have text on cards. Mm -hmm. And you also need to know, like, how do we want people to perceive this game? In the case of our game, we have Islander cards. Every every Islander card is illustrated because those are the faces. Those are the people of the island. Mm -hmm. And so we want you to put a face to the concept of a person. You want to put a face to that rather than just have it be a pile of icons which is pretty impersonal. And, and this is also a chance for us to express the theme in an important way. So we needed to kind of sort out what our theme was first. So we started Art Direction. I mean, it's, it's been part of the process, but we kind of did all the development work first. And then I started experimenting with how can I make this game? And I knew that I was wanted to make the game language neutral. And I knew things like I wanted to have a round board. Right. I, I wanted to have something different. And so because I in my research of the theme, I was like, well, we have this mandala shapes that were a common representative a representation of the Majapahit Empire. So what if we did something with like, a die cut board that was like a you know, eight pointed mandala? That would be really cool. Look awesome on the table. Mm -hmm. So I kind of started with like, you know, these form questions first. And then I experimented that. And Taryn and I, Taryn's a graphic designer as well. So he, he took a couple shots at doing some some stuff, which helped like set out the colors and kind of the intensity of it. And I started, you know, sketching out how do I want this board to look. And then when we had all that, we brought in our friends at Quill Silver Studios, Dan May, who's worked on Everdell and Archmage and a bunch of games for Starling. It does this spectacular work. Dan came in and, and we said, okay, this is kind of what we're looking at. And, and Dan being the kind of graphic designer slash illustrator that he is, you know, he looked at it from a higher level than he's not just executing what we had. I had a big pile of cultural references. I said, this is the kind of thing we want to do. We want to have this really strong Indonesian flavor. And Dan's from, Dan's from Australia. And there's a lot of Indonesians in Australia. There's a lot of, since they're so close in proximity, geographic proximity, there's quite a bit of cultural exchange. In mm -hmm. the same way, we have a lot of exchange with Canada and Mexico, you know, as our next door neighbors. He knew some Indonesian artists from his work and he's a little more familiar with stuff. And so he brought in an Indonesian artist, Angar Adarasa, who had worked with him on other projects before. And Angar was really jazzed about the theme too. And so Angar dug into some of the cultural art styles. You know, I had, I had said, oh, I really love the shadow puppetry. What can we do with that? Right. Um, but Angar is like, well, have you ever, did you know that on the temple friezes of the Majapahit ruins, there's this really kind of unique style of figures that are done in bas relief that are kind of flattened out. So they all have their hands, you know, kind of in front of them and turned and it was a really unique look. And I had no idea. Yeah, Angar brought that to the table and used that to influence his work and then built on that and did this beautiful illustrative full color work, but where that influence really kind of defined the look of the game. And Dan did all this work with the board. He went and he looked at a bunch of sources from that era. And because we knew the what we wanted to do, he had, had this notion of the all the action spaces become little uh, golden bowls. And in those bowls would be local fruits and flowers from that region of the world. And, you know, mm -hmm. it was really, it was a very holistic process where everybody invested in figuring out what was the most, the, the richest visual presentation we'd come up with. You know, so I, I, I knew some certain things I wanted to achieve, but then we brought in people that kind of knew and were in touch and invested in that that same notion of doing something that was earnest to the place and, and the themes of the of the game that really brought it to to the fore. And and that's what was so cool about it. That's why it looks so awesome. It's because some of that stuff is coming completely out of, you know, Dan's head or Angar's head. Some of those things are results of a lot of discussions with our cultural consultants beyond, you know, we had our team at Catch Up Games who helped advise us and they would say, oh, this, you know, have you thought about this or, you know, this, this is not the type of pat somebody would wear, you know, or, right. or th these colors don't feel as Indonesian, you know, like maybe something more vibrant or that's that, that amount, that conversation was so valuable for making the game what it was. Um, so the art direction wasn't so much direction as like kind of put everybody pointed in the same direction, said, we all want to go there to the finished game and then let it kind of work its way out. That journey was a place where I was mainly a passenger. I sort of pointed to the horizon and said, that's over there. <laughs> right. Everybody else got to do the work to get us there. You hit something that I noticed on the board, and it, I don't know if I noticed it as much as a Indonesian, like fruits, vegetables, and like offerings, but I, I noticed like on each zone, all the bowls, you know, had different amounts of offerings based on how powerful that action slot was. Yeah, that was so you had like this Dan, visual yeah. representation of like I want this one. It has the most stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Visually, 
it has the most stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that was all Dan. Like he got into, you know, he, he does the game development too. So he's looking at it from, you know, how, what does it mean in the game? What does it mean right. in terms of, and, and how can you represent that subtly in a way to draw people in? So, yeah. And, and then, you know, each of the zones has a different type of offering, you know, right. at, the, at the, at the village, which she has this illustrative work of the village itself in the region. And it's got this kind of orange color, all the, bowls have like incense burners then the incense more and more burnt down you know the ashes are are cooling and and stuff like that whereas the at the sacred lake it's water you know and in the in the forest it's these flowers and these and you know in our ambalau board it's like cockle shells and other things that would have been pulled off a beach it's all it's just a beautiful the best games marry art and presentation with themes and mechanics right in a way that really is a force multiplier i think it's so often to think about you know, especially coming from the tabletop role-playing game world. You know, people think art is art, rules are rules, theme is theme. All those things coexist, but they don't cross-talk. And because, you know, it, it's theater of the mind. But I think in a board game, board games are experience crafting. You know, when I think about how people engage with board games, I don't just think about how they think about the theme. How they think about theme informs how they think about rules. You know, we talk about rule. When we play the game, we think about rules. But when we talk about the game, we talk about theme, right? And and when we, when we, but when we engage with the game the first time, we're almost always engaging with art. And so right. all those things are part of this holistic experience. I mean, how your game, how your body moves through the space around a board game. Like, is it inconvenient to reach all the way across to a corner space in front of three friends and over that bowl of pretzels? to get resources you know is it does it feel satisfying to drop a piece and hear it go plunk like you know we don't think about that often i think with board games how a game sounds how a game mm -hmm. how you move in the space around you like that is all it's a it's a user experience design thing and so i think that that's the that's a important thing with art direction too it's not just saying can you get a good artist it's also can you get a good graphic design it's important but can you put those things together in a way that's convenient physically convenient to act in meat space together you know we've talked about the game mechanics the the, the true design work behind it we've talked about now the art direction mm -hmm. but throughout all this you have to play test balance and then go back adjust so how did that work out for buru what was the the play testing and balancing aspects play testing and balancing is different with board games and tabletop role-playing games, uh, ultimately tabletop games, RPGs, you go cool first. <laughs> you want mm -hmm. rules to not, you know, Crafty's had a reputation for being somebody who can make games that are very balanced, right? Where it feels like no option is obviously inferior to another one. You know, we don't have spells right. that are like, uh, spells in this class are completely worthless compared to those. You, you don't have the old, you know, evocation is the only school you need to focus on as a wizard, you know, that sort right. of stuff. We've always tried to make every option valuable. If you want to be a talking character, or a, uh, you know, a sneaking character, or a brawny fighting character, those are all characters we want people to feel like it's fair and fun to play that. Um, but board games are, as a direct competitive thing, you have to really consider balance a little bit more. But I, I, I think it's, it's not as scientific as people think. You know, you can do a lot of data. You can get a lot of data, but there's so many variables in games. Players, familiarity with the rules, just general randomness of card draws and stuff like that, that there was no such thing as like perfectly balancing a game in a lot of ways. And in some ways, games that have slight imbalances are more interesting than ones that are perfectly symmetrical. Like if every decision is equally valuable in a board game, then your decisions actually mean less, you know? Because it's like, well, I could take this or that, and they're the same. So the question is, which one do I want? I think everything has to be interesting. So Buru handles balance uh, in a lot of ways by having a, comp a competition over the better benefits. You know, we have, and then it's more about saying, are these benefits actually scaled to each other? You know, create a smaller box than saying, is the whole thing balanced? Its score system is a very tight game. Like you can take multiple paths and multiple strategies and execute them. And the scores are tight, but it's not balance per se is not the goal so much as it's, does it, is it fun? Does it seem fair? Do you have a chance to pull it out through good strategy and tactics? And so you want to make sure that all those things are enabled through the game. And that you don't have to have a PhD in this game to understand how to do that right. is the other thing. So starting with that frame, I think the the playtesting was, you know, grinding. You're just watching people. You start out kind of playing. You 
blue sky. What are we going to change? Well, what do you think we could change? And that conversation a lot of times derails the game halfway through. But eventually you get to the point where you just have to start watching it be played and just let it play it as it is. And then eventually you get to the point where you're just watching other people play and not saying anything. That's kind of the classic thing. And it, ideally you go to a full blind play test where you're just sending the game to people and saying, what do you think? And we've done all those things because we've had enough time to do that. But yeah, you're, you're getting lots of information, but it's not all actionable data. You just sort of have to read the tea leaves and play it. But yeah, we've had two and a half, three years of playtesting with this game. Um, it's just with so many iterations and so much changing all the time that that data is, it's still a lot of feeling your way through it and trying to not destroy the good work you've done to start over. I guess the other thing is one thing that you and I kind of talked about uh, last time. I don't remember if it truly made the cut of the episode, but we mm-hmm. talked about you working on the solo mode for Buru. Right. What was the approach of the solo mode? Solo modes are different because you're doing that last. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've decided the game has been locked in for eight months. You know, mm-hmm. nothing has really changed beyond very tiny tweaks. So the solo mode I could approach in a much more regimented way because I'm actually trying to build a simple AI program using cards to represent or to replicate player actions and mm-hmm. player scores and the interaction that you would get in a game of Buru where people are competing for spaces and bumping you out and putting up a score that you have to beat. We don't tend to like beat your own score style solo modes. That's what we kind of had in the original game very simple the version we're building which we're calling the lawan which just means opponent or rival in indonesian is a card driven system that replicates most of what player actions do so it will place explorers in areas so you have to compete to build its bids and you don't know what its bids are it scores points and pays tribute just like a player Um, Mm -hmm. it collects cards you try to take as many decisions as you can out of players hands that they would use to advantage themselves in those games and so it was also figuring out where players are not cannot be allowed to make a choice. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Islanders are the tableau building element of the game. You're, you collect Islanders and you can use them as an engine to accelerate your game and amplify your tributes and all that other fun stuff. Well, we can't have a competitive player making a decision about that for the AI because they're always going to choose the inferior thing. Right. We have a rule in the system that doesn't allow it to activate those. Instead, it plays a set collection game with those islanders mm-hmm. and we built then we built a simple priority system or i built a sim- simple priority system that lets you that says the law one wants to buy this one if it's not that one's not available it will buy this one this next class and if it doesn't mm-hmm. that's not available by this one and then oh well if it's tied it always buys the cheaper one because it's trying to build as big a set as it as it can and we do the same thing for paying tribute and things like that so it's a little bit unpredictable and then one thing that comes out of those play tests that i've done so it's like 20 or 30 at this point it's a lot mm-hmm. of solo gaming but you know <laughs> It's a solo gaming time uh, in human history. Right. <laughs> the other part was figuring out where it needed to have something to compensate for things. So it can't use an engine. It's not using its islanders. Most players are using its uh, their islanders to generate extra resources, generate extra score, things like that. And because we have this random bidding mechanic with the cards that just determine where explorers go and, and the lay of the land, I took the functionality that core functionality how does it score extra points how does it do these things and allow that and use the multiple placement rules in the same way so now instead of having islanders to get bonuses it's random placement determines what bonuses it gets so Mm. if it if it double bids in the sacred lake every time it pays tribute it's going to gain one extra esteem point which is a powerful card in the islanders if it double bids in the forest it's going to get extra resources and the those resources are randomly determined by the card itself. So I have a very simple program that says, like, if it's it's getting a little compensation for essentially bidding in a way that is not allowing it to maximize the number of actions it has, but because that's random, this is another way of creating some very competitive scores and challenges for the players. And so then it's just modulating what those bonuses are. And the problem I've had is that the, the law on runs very hot. It is difficult to beat it. Probably the biggest challenge is figuring out a way to make it not so good that it's going to dominate you every time. I know some mm-hmm. players really like high-level challenges, but I the kind of rule of thumb people like to say is like you should be able to beat the AI about one out of three times. 
and that's mm-hmm. kind of considered the hard mode. I was at one point I was like, it, you were losing to it about ninety percent of the time. It got a little right. demoralizing losing to it so many times, <laughs> where you feels like you need luck to beat it, and that is not what you want. Right. Yeah. I, I think it does a good replication of creating a game environment that's hard and challenging. But then the other part you have to do is consider how much mental overhead requires when you're doing in solo mode because you know i've tried to use the atoma in certain games before and my ears like set themselves on fire you know i won't i won't name names but i've had games where it's like oh there's a whole separate rule book just for running the solo mode and it's not because it's like oh it's a simple pamphlet it's the game is fundamentally different Right. I, I tried one game where the solo mode was the majority of the rule book mm-hmm. the, of the main rule book. So for humans, pretty easy for solo, like not easy at all. And you have to relearn the game. You don't want that. Like I, I use solo modes as a way to play a first contact game so mm-hmm. I can learn how to teach other people how to play this game. Right. And so I wanted the game, the experience to be as close to human as possible. And at the same time to be as low bandwidth as possible so that players can get their hands on it they can learn how to play it and they don't feel like they're playing three individuals games against themselves because mm-hmm. you have to run two in a solo game you have to run two ai opponents to make the bidding challenging so this one is very simple you flip a card you're going to drop a law one a's explorer at this space for a and then you're going to do the same for the other one at b you know mm-hmm. so that's it and then um, and you, then you take your turn and then you do it again. You repeat four times and then you go to the phase where you resolve your actions and you just flip out a card for them and that sets up their bonuses for the round. So you don't know what their bonuses are but you until that beginning of that round and now you're, you kind of are able to get the sense of discovery of the AI's strategy that round mm-hmm. and it will go ahead and do everything accordingly and so it's pretty challenging but it feels like playing against a player all you're doing is flipping a card and doing what it says you don't have Mm -hmm. to think about it you can spend the time you want that brain juice to go into observing okay i gotta get my score up because this is built it's built a set of five islanders that's going to be an extra seven points at the end of the game that's a big Mm -hmm. hit to me so i have to figure out a way to stop it from collecting anymore or i have to you know what i mean find those points elsewhere yeah exactly so that, that but that gives it gives you it creates an environment where you have a feel like you have a chance to react but you don't have perfect information mm-hmm. um, i designed a perfect information version of this before and it, the scores were literally double to have so many extra points all over the place to get the ai to be competitive but when mm. i switched it over to where it's an evolving strategy that you have to observe and react to not only is it more interesting it's way harder to beat <laughs> so right it's been this this last pass has me been designing it down which allows me to make it a little simpler at the same time which is great so it's even more like a human and you have to learn less to to play against it so you you kind of talked a little about the challenges of the, the solo mode design there mm-hmm. so uh, but what other challenges have guru overall faced that you guys have uh, had to overcome i would say the the process has been really good the people we've worked with has been very good mm-hmm. the the game itself has always been something we've always liked and been happy with you know even if we're making changes we were always felt we were moving and making the game better so we mm-hmm. never like do we have to cut bait on this game or anything like that we believed in it from day one uh one of the harder parts has actually been the thematic design because of the choices we made about keeping the the name and buru theme so the time we chose with the majapa heat encounter with the people of buru initially that's an area that as i discovered uh in trying to do research a lot of the historical records didn't exist like there was not a lot of written uh down about this period the things that were written down were preserved on palm leaves so the, there's an epic written on this uh if you watch our kickstarter video you'll see that there's this kind of a, a venetian blind thing that pulls out that's actually a replication of the palm leaf naga redagama i believe it says um the which is this big epic where we hear about brewer the first time and so those don't survive a lot of 700 years of wear and tear Mm -hmm. (laughs) so there's the amount of written records are tough we're also facing a time where people are much more sensitive to things like the notion of colonialism in games Mm -hmm. um, and other parts like this and this game could be done in such a way without care that made it seem like it was pro-colonial or whatever else like that we so we've worked a lot with that that's where our cultural consultants come in that's where a bunch of research comes in that's where you know choices about the theme come in you know fortunately the the facts bear out the research that we've done bears out that the the type of 
situation with Majapahit going out to these other islands by virtue of the structure of the kingdoms and the the nature of that em- particular empire was not a fire and sword, you know, European style conquer and install yourself and overwrite everything there that we are when we think about colonialism um, mm-hmm. we think about it. this is more a lot of times in a more of a vassal state like this there may not even been representatives left on that island we don't know so and that we don't know part makes the thematic stuff tougher when you're trying to be mm-hmm. earnest to a a place and a time and a people and a, a number of cultures at the same time you're trying to work around the, i don't know with this is what we do know and let's express the spirit in the best possible way so this is the one of those things where we're very sensitive and from the beginning have really looked at how can we make this game respectful and accessible to the folks that are from these places and Mm -hmm. and so we're focused on trying to do the best accuracy we can but you know that that's really tough to look that up i'm i'm not a you know i'm not a southeast asian cultural anthropologist you know right. <laughs> and getting a hold of those people has been speaking from experience has been exceptionally difficult so mm-hmm. you know but we've done the best uh, i think we've done a pretty good job and we've done, certainly done the best we can and uh, are continuing to do better and as we take feedback and the campaign starts we're going to continue to take that feedback and fold it into the game to make it as good as we can so but you know we understand we understand the limits you know with cross cultural work you know, we're working across language barriers, across cultural barriers, across geographic barriers. And so we understand that, you know, we may not get everything right, but we're committed to doing the best job we can and doing better whenever we know better. Awesome. So that's what you've already encountered. And you already mm-hmm. sound like you have a very solid and, and open-minded plan of something comes up during the Kickstarter and something's brought to light. You go, oh, let's, you know, you, you already have that idea of, hey, let's figure out how to course correct but what other challenges that has yet to show up that you, you <laughs> i know, mean th- those rocks in the sea that you may come across <laughs> well i mean you know manufacturing right now especially is mm-hmm. it's always a uh, full of surprises you know it's tough it's it's tough with the supply chain issues in china with the manufacturing sourcing things prices are all over the place for commodities because of again shipping disruptions and and price instabilities so you know there's always and you'll you discover almost invariably in making a thing that what you thought could be made and maybe even what the factory thought could be made can't be made in a way that actually works out financially mm-hmm. so you know we're kind of there's always something that comes up and usually there's something that's positive at the same time you know we'll find oh there's a there's a place where we could do something even better you know and when we did dollars to donuts our our previous campaign we discovered halfway through the campaign that we could make um instead of making our our player mats out of uh paper we could make them out of pvc which made them waterproof tear proof yeah it's really cool um and so we decided to add, add that as an upgrade mid campaign because mm-hmm. like, that's really cool but there's happy accidents and there's unfortunate accidents um so that's always one of the things but um you know the other challenge of course is finding an audience in this market i mean mm-hmm. you know, board games are very popular right now but you know game stores are full of stock and it's been 2020 has been a year for game stores you would think mm-hmm. about our hobby retailers and stuff they've got to be sometimes more picky about what they take in because they can't have stuff sitting on the shelf so you know trying to find a way to connect with getting into stores and getting into in front of players and getting those folks to, you know, take a chance on something that's not the next licensed, you know, Star Wars game or you right. know, whatever it ends up being, you know, it can be tough in, in times of, uh, you know, greater uncertainty. So, you know, I think we've prepared as best we possibly can. You know, we've made a good product. We made a fun product. We made one that looks beautiful. So it's just, but you never know how you're going to connect or what's going to resonate with people. Yeah. And, you know, I can even speak from that retailer side of things is one of my, you know, past iterations was one of those uh, retail game store employees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, coming back from then to now, like more and more games just come out in a year than Mm -hmm. years pass. And so like the amount of games has been increased. Games also usually have a pretty long shelf life. Like Catan still sells after all these years. So you still stock it, but your linear feet doesn't change. Right. So your shelf space is still fixed for most stores unless they actually go into like some sort of expansion or move. They're not getting more linear feet. So they have to figure out how to find the games that are going to resonate with their communities. Exactly. And Catan is still getting expansions, right? And alternative versions. And so Mm -hmm. the, yeah, it's a real challenge. I mean, everything's got to pay rent and, 
you know, mm-hmm. it's it's always how do you find a way to stand out from the pack? So beautiful art, good theme, good mm-hmm. gameplay. Those are all meaningful, but you've got to convert those retailers as much as you can uh, as well to really get the, the space in the store and, and get in front of people. We've talked the the journey to Buru uh, for a while now. So what is next for Buru? Where can we find out more information about Buru? Well, uh, we're going to be going to Kickstarter on May 17th. And so that'll be on kickstarter.com. But in the meantime, you can find out more about the game and try out a digital version of it on Tabletop Simulator at burugame.com. That's B-U-R-U-G-A-M-E.com. We also have a Buru Facebook group um, and Crafty Games on Facebook and Twitter. And then craftygames.com is a place to find more information as well. All right. And you said coming to Kickstarter May 17th. Correct. And we've kind of talked that if I somehow budget whatever the reason i overslept and i don't get the kickstarter you are planning to go to retail sounds yes like. yes absolutely so okay yeah so we're going to be going to kickstarter there's going to be uh, day one we're going to have uh, a retail release we're going to have a deluxe edition um the deluxe edition will include silk screened meeples with some fancy gold stuff a, a special box with gold foil and um, Mm -hmm. all the resource tokens will be silk screened as well and uh we're gonna have a custom game trays insert that will handle that will be able to accommodate not only the base game Mm -hmm. and all the components it will also have room for all the expansion material as well we have a day one expansion that day called uh ambalau ambalau is going to start out and be developed over the course of the campaign through stretch goals uh so it'll include a secondary board uh components for a fifth player additional spirits and cards and components and there's just gonna be that box is gonna get stuffed with additional modules that we've already got developed and ready to go so as we as the campaign goes and hopefully goes really well and then we'll have a few other you know direct only items Deluxe edition will be direct only. The it will have a neoprene game mat that's double sided that will be able to play with the expansion or without the expansion, just flip it over, um, stuff like that. And we also include a tier for those folks who want to support their game stores but want the bling. We have a retailer pledge level, so I'd recommend that if you want to support your store and get all the fancy stuff, you can go to your retailer, get them to back for a pretty reasonable price. They get a mm-hmm. uh, they get a standard. Uh, distribution discount and they can just back for us and then they'll be able to back for anything we offer in the campaign they won't be locked out of getting these direct only items that sounds awesome alex i'm I'm pretty excited for it myself and honestly after you know doing the review copy for you guys i'm really excited to see how it shows up in in a final product with all the bows ribbons and and gold (laughs) trimmings on it it sounds like yeah (laughs) me too me too that's what we did that's the main part of the deluxe like gold if, right. if you want to there's there's gold on every explorer there's gold on the box you know the one of the trays will be gold the game trays tray is really cool you know the they actually added a little sub resource tray kind of like in parks so you can mm. to take all the resources directly out of the tray pop just, the lid off take that and just and it fits the radial curve of the board which is really cool so it's just oh. like nestle right in there yeah it's like that's um, really fancy yeah yeah so they did a great job with it and um yeah, you can actually see a preview of the tray in uh, the Kickstarter video, which is up okay. on YouTube right now or on brewagame.com. And yeah, I, I want to emphasize it for the folks that are, are interested in the game. Mm-hmm. If you go to www.crafty-games.com slash digital, that's B-U-R-U-D-I-G-I-T-A-L. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spelled that correctly. <laughs> you can go, it'll take you straight to the Tabletop Simulator mod. And so you can try out the base game there for free, pop it open in TTS, or you can search for it in the Steam Workshop on, on Tabletop Simulator if you already have it. Set up the game and, and play. Give us your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. I guess with the game trees, sleeved and unsleeved cards supported? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. A couple little you know, goodies working on. And one of those things we'd like to do is get a custom set of sleeves to go with it as well. So, yeah. That well, sounds maybe like not one. Sleeves hey. that will go with it and fit into the tray. That, right. Let's put it that way. <laughs> some, some sort of sleeve package that could be added to your pledge. Yes, absolutely. So that you don't have to worry and hunt those down yourself. Mm-hmm. Always nice. important. Yes, yes. All right, Alex. Uh, it's been great talking about Buru with you. I think it's super enlightening just to kind of see the the journey that it's been on and the journey it still has yet to go because May 17th, that's when uh, you, you kind of cast it off and, and see what 
if it sinks or or, or if it <laughs> starts swimming. Oh, I think I think we're going to be fine. Um, yeah. But, you know, I really want to see it take off. I, I want to put this game in front of gamers and families. I yes. I think a lot of folks that get their hands on Buru, there's a lot of, there for gamers to love. But I think it's a game that you could teach if you're kind of ready to move past Catan with the family. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got kids that maybe are familiar with some games, but you want to get them a little deeper into the hobby games. It's got it's really accessible. You can play it. You can kind of play it two levels. And I think that's important for bringing people into the hobby and stuff like that you know it's 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 beautiful it looks on the table it will draw people to it so i think you can get that out get people playing and, and your you know your kids or your maybe uh game averse significant other uh or parents you know you can probably drag them in too and, and get them playing uh in just a couple minutes so awesome. pretty exciting stuff well, I definitely appreciate your time uh and and insights into the journey and I know from tabletop arcanum we're going to be cheering and watching the kickstarter when it goes live on may 17th and hitting all those stretch goals and cheering along the way for you awesome thanks justin and welcome back thanks for listening to that interview with alex flag from crafty games now be sure to check out buru on kickstarter starting may 17th also if you're listening to this from the future hopefully buru will be sitting on your local friendly game store shelf if not Head over to Crafty Games and order one for yourself if that's interesting. If you want to hear our opinions from Tabletop Arcanum, make sure you listen to our review of Buru. And as always, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are also on YouTube. And happy gaming. Tabletop Arcanum produced by Justin Taylor. This episode is hosted by Justin Taylor. Mixing and editing by Richard Geese. Original theme by Paul Moore and Isaac Gilbert. Check the description for this episode's featured background music. You can follow us on most social media platforms. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow. And leave us a review if you would. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.